is great to see you today. If you got your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 3. We're still in our Mind Shift series. That's where we're going to be this morning, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to talk about running hard after God. Is anybody into that? Yeah. Running hard after God? I am. hope you are as well. I'm going to read our scripture for us, and uh, you can pull the little study guide out of your worship folder. You can follow along with us there. I'm going to read it and then say a prayer, and uh, then we'll dive into it, okay? Here's what Paul wrote, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this, all what? All the things we talked about last week, <laughs> or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And so, Father in heaven, our great God, whom we've enjoyed worshiping already this morning, I ask you now to do what only you can do. I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would take the words and lift them off the page and embed them in the hearts of your people and change us today, God. Change us. We come with open hands before you, wanting to receive from you, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts in a deep way. I'm asking this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is a, an awesome passage, really. And when I first read it and studied it and I, and I saw that it kind of reveals Paul's mindset, the first place my mind went was back to a book that I read last fall titled Into Thin Air by a journalist named John Krakauer. It, it's the story of, of the harrowing adventure of an international group of mountaineers, climbers, who set out, I think it was back in the mid-90s, to climb to the top of Mount Everest. As I read the book, what stood out most to me was the passionate, single-minded obsession of those climbers. It's as if Everest had sunk its hooks into them and would not let them think about anything else but doing whatever it took to get to the summit. Each of the climbers paid tens of thousands of dollars just for the privilege of climbing, they endured months of arduous training. Then when they got there and started the climb, blinding snowstorms, bone-chilling winds, sub-zero temperatures, sheer walls of ice that they had to scale, frostbite, all kinds of high-altitude sicknesses, and then in their group, personality conflicts and ego battles, all for the chance to stand on top of the world and take a picture and say, I did it. They all knew the cost. They all knew the potential danger. But without exception, they believed that it would all be worth it in the end. And some of them ended up paying the ultimate price for their obsession. And that's the, the picture that came to my mind when I read here of Paul's pursuit of the goal that he had his sights set on, which was an even loftier goal than the summit of Mount Everest. Paul had a similar mindset of focused determination. And it's that mindset that I want us to explore together this morning because it's what made Paul the most dynamic, life-impacting Christian that this world has ever known. What we see in these 
few verses this morning are really two things. First, we see Paul revealing how he thinks about the Christian life. That's verses 12 through 14. And then we see him urging other people to embrace that same way of thinking. I want to start there. I want to start with the end, verses 15 and 16. Let me read that again. He said, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What's he saying? This is so critical. In verse 15, he's saying that mature Christians think a certain way. You see that? Let us who are, who are mature think this way. In fact, maturity comes from developing that mindset. We're going to explore that way of thinking in a minute. And then he says in verse 15, if, if your thinking isn't there yet, if, if your thinking isn't mature yet, God wants to get you there. God is committed to growing up all of his children, including you and me. And he does this, it says, by making things clear to our minds. Do you see that? If your way of thinking is misaligned with his, he's going to reveal to you that you need a mind shift. And that's my prayer for us today. And then in verse 16, so important. You see the word think? In verse 15, circle that word and circle the word live in verse 16 and then connect those two words with a line. Because thinking and living are connected, aren't they? Mature living comes from mature thinking. Trying to change your behavior without changing your mindset leads to futility and frustration. Trying to change someone else's behavior without changing their mindset leads to futility and frustration. Lasting change in lifestyle is always, always, always rooted in a mind shift. That's why the Bible says, be transformed by the, what? Renewing of your mind. All true transformation starts up here. As my friend Craig likes to say, gospel thinking leads to kingdom living. So true. So Paul is advocating that followers of Jesus embrace a certain mindset, a certain way of thinking, a mature mindset. In doing so, he contends, will lead to spiritual progress in your life instead of losing ground and sliding backwards, like he says in verse 16. So I say, okay, thanks, Paul. Can you describe for us this mindset? And he would say, why, certainly. I think I'll use an analogy from the world of athletics since so many people love sports, and I'm a sports lover. How many of you are sports lovers in the room? Yeah. Anybody watch any of the Olympics? Catch some of that? Yeah. You probably know that the modern Olympic games trace their origin back to the ancient Greek games that got their start even back before Paul was born. It's likely that Paul himself had sat in the stands and watched some of those athletic contests and races of those games. No doubt he had seen the closing ceremony where the winners, instead of receiving a medal, would have received a wreath placed around their neck, a cherished, coveted award, the emblem of victory. And in this passage, Paul decides to use the analogy of an Olympic runner to give his readers an understanding of this mindset that he's urging them to adopt. 
He's saying, if you want to make real spiritual progress in your life, then start to think, start to think more like that guy or gal who is running the marathon race in the Olympics. Just be glad he didn't use, like, curling, you know. I mean, curling, isn't that just kind of the strangest sport? Another conversation, another day. Okay, Paul, why this analogy? Why running? I think in addition to wanting to instill a particular mindset, Paul chose this particular analogy to counter two seriously flawed views of the Christian life. The first is perfectionism, and the second is passivity. Christian perfectionism, you know what that is? That's the teaching that you win your race by achieving sinless perfection in this life. Like at some point during the race, rather than at the finish line, you can achieve sinless perfection. There are entire denominations that hold to this view. Most of them trace their roots back to a guy named John Wesley back in the 1700s and others, who believed that you could have a certain experience as a Christian that would totally wipe out your sin nature and you would be completely holy. Oh, that that were true. (laughs) It's often referred to as the doctrine of entire sanctification. And some of you were raised that way, weren't you? Many of those churches, if you're a Christian and you do happen to stumble back into sin, they'll tell you that you'll need to be resaved again. You need to get born again again. (laughs) But listen, wouldn't you agree with me that Paul ran the Christian race as well as anybody ever has? And what did he say in verse 12? Not that I've already obtained all of this, nor have already been made perfect. What's he saying? I'm not perfect. And I'm telling you this, if the Apostle Paul, with where he was at, was not perfect, you and I are not going to get there. Not in this life. I think he's undercutting this view of Christian perfectionism. But he's also torpedoing this other popular idea Listen now, that the Christian life is just kind of this passive, you know, sit around, let go and let God kind of thing where you don't really expend any energy of your own. Some people think that receiving grace means that once you accept Christ and become a Christian, that there's no effort involved in growing as a Christian because God does it all for you. I think Paul used the runner analogy because he wanted us to understand that No one wins their race by sitting around at home in their lazy boy doing nothing. There's training and there's effort and there is energy involved like a runner running a race. Now, let me be crystal clear. We know that becoming a Christian is purely a matter of receiving the grace of God, right? God did all the work himself through the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son, on the cross. It is finished. But listen, the biblical mindset is this. Once you've received grace, you want more. And you become willing to put forth effort to have it. You ever heard of A.W. Tozer, a godly pastor from a previous generation? He wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. Great book. One chapter is called Following Hard After God, and in it he wrote this. How tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. 
Everything is made to center upon that initial act of accepting Christ, and we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious, spurious logic which insists that if we have found God, we need no more seek Him. This is a smug interpretation of Scripture which would certainly have sounded strange to an Augustine, a Rutherford, or a David Brainerd, or to Paul, I would add. And so I believe we should reject the false logic that says, if you've found Christ, you don't need to seek after Him, you don't need to chase after Him. Tozer wrote this, To have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love, scorned by the too easily satisfied religionists, like we talked about last week, but justified in the happy experience of the children of the burning heart. Listen to me. The evidence that you have Christ is that you want more of Christ. You believe that? The evidence that you have Jesus is you want more of him. The initial salvation experience lets you taste the goodness of the Lord, but you know there is so much more of him to savor. Did you know that? So, pure perfection is not possible in this life, but that does not prevent the sincere Christian from running hard after God and striving to know Christ more. Does that make sense? Okay, like four of you shook your heads, so. <laughs> Listen to the podcast later and get, get this, okay? All right, let's peer into the mind of the Olympic runner now, which was Paul's own way of thinking. And, and for many of us, to think this way is going to be new. It's going to be a mind shift, but that's okay, right? Because that's the work that God's doing in our church these days. And that's also what is needed to run well and win the prize. So, follow me now. The first thing that Paul describes in describing his own mindset and the mindset of the Olympic runner is what I've heard called a holy discontent. Would you say that with me? Holy discontent. Cultivating a holy dissatisfaction with where you're at. He wrote, not that I have already obtained all this, but I press on. If you want to run your race well, cultivate a holy discontent in your heart. A good runner is never satisfied with his previous best, right? He's always wanting to work to improve his time, lower his time, beat his best, always. In fact, when you think about it, making progress in any area of your life usually starts with a healthy dissatisfaction with the current state of things. So let's say you don't like the financial pressure that you're feeling in your life these days, and so you decide to do something about that, and you craft a plan to get out of debt or stop going into debt, and you start to live by that plan. Or maybe when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see there. There's more of you than you wanted to see, and so you say, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to work on a a plan for eating better or, and or exercising. It begins with a healthy dissatisfaction. All change does. You won't hear um, great teams saying things like, well, hey, we won our division four years in a row. We feel like that's plenty. We're going to step back and let somebody else enjoy the spoils of victory. You won't hear that. 
I guarantee you the Seattle Seahawks are already working to get better even though they just won the Super Bowl. Great teams stay hungry, right? It's very challenging for me to realize that by this stage of his life, Paul had led thousands of people to Jesus. He'd raised up scores of leaders. He'd planted dozens of churches. He'd written a bunch of the New Testament. He'd lived faithfully and walked with Jesus for decades, but in one sense, it still wasn't enough. He wanted more. I haven't yet attained what I want to attain, he wrote, and so I'm pressing ahead. It's not that he was driven to try and earn God's favor. He knew he had God's favor in Christ. It's that he still didn't know Christ as deeply as he wanted to, and he knew he hadn't completed the work that Christ had called him to, and so he stayed hungry. He cultivated a holy discontent. And so let me ask, have you reached a point in your life where you've become content with where you're at spiritually? If so, I recommend you hang around Paul a little bit more. Or maybe just as good, hang around a new Christian. Someone who's fresh into the family of God. They've got that wide-eyed excitement about God and Jesus and the Word of God. Maybe God would use their enthusiasm to spark something in you to get you going in the right direction again. Holy discontent. Second, I see that Paul had a, a, a big purpose that gripped his heart. He braced a gripping purpose. I press on, he wrote, to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. And we know this, right? Great athletes and great teams are in the grip of a big goal. Go undefeated. Be number one. Win the Super Bowl. Beat Michigan for a change. Watching the Olympics, I heard more than one athlete say this. I came to Sochi for one purpose, to win a medal for me and my country. That's why I'm here. The Everest climbers were gripped by a lofty goal to reach the summit, to stand on the top of the world. Nothing less would do. Being in the grip of a big purpose that you haven't yet achieved is what fuels that discontent that keeps driving you forward. Paul fueled his holy discontent by reminding himself of what Jesus had saved him for. He knew why God had left him on the planet instead of just taking him right to heaven when he got saved there on the Damascus Road. There was a reason, a purpose, a mission, a work, a calling that God had called him to, and it wasn't done yet, it wasn't completed yet, and it drove him to keep pressing on. I wonder how many of you have a strong sense of purpose that grips your heart. Are you on a mission from God? Without that, I'm telling you, your Christian life will lose its punch. It'll lose its spice. It'll lose its pizzazz. A mentor of mine once told me that she clarified her purpose by condensing it down, 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 down into just one phrase. And she challenged me to do the same thing. Let me ask you, why are you here? Why did God leave you on the planet instead of taking you on up to heaven right after he saved you. Can, can, can you put words to it? I mean, do you know what the good work is that he 
has called you to do in the remainder of your days and gifted you to do. And, and if you can't, if you're not clear on that, that might explain your lack of spiritual drive and hunger. And like my mentor did with me, I'm going to challenge you to get clearer on this. And I'll share more about that in a few minutes. Once you're clear on that, on your purpose, then you can channel your energies into fulfilling it. That's the third aspect of Paul's Olympic mindset, a narrow focus, adopting a narrow focus for your life. Notice again what he wrote. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but what? One thing. One thing. One thing I do. Great runners do this. They focus on one thing, the finish line. Here's the truth. The reason that some of us aren't leaving much of a mark for Christ is that we're just too scattered. We're like all over the lot. We're like the guy who was so excited to get going that he jumped up on his horse and rode off wildly in all directions. <laughs> Paul said, I'm focused on one thing with my life. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Dawson Trotman? Does that name ring any bells? A few of you. He was the founder of the Navigators Ministry. Maybe you've heard of that. It's a worldwide ministry started back in the 30s and 40s. It's impacted tens of thousands of military men and women for Christ, is still doing that today. Dawson Trotman, Trotman died in a freak drowning accident at Scroon Lake in 1956, and Billy Graham was asked to speak at his funeral service, and he did. He spoke about the deep, far-reaching impact of this one man's life. And he said this, he said, I think Dawson has personally touched more lives than anyone else I've ever known. Why? Because Dawson did not say, these 40 things I dabble in, but instead, this one thing I do. That's the power of a focused life. You know, there's some people I want to look at and say, get focused for crying out loud. <laughs> you are spread out all over the place. You, you've got energy going in all kinds of different directions. How about doing one thing that you can excel at? You know, when I was a kid, I was kind of an eccentric kid. Um, I like to burn, I like to do a lot of things. I like to burn leaves with a magnifying glass. Anybody else like, like doing that? I know now it would probably be labeled as some kind of obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> but I sure like taking my magnifying glass and watching that little white dot start to smoke and then poof ignition you know that was almost as fun as making Drano bombs and throwing them into the neighbor's yard but that's a whole nother thing how does that happen not the Drano bomb thing how does the how does the leaf burning thing happen well the magnifying glass takes the sun's rays right the sun's rays, and focuses those rays down onto one single point. And then, bam! Combustion happens, and it bursts into flames. That's the power of focused energy. Running well and winning your race is going to require focus. 
If you're a person who wants to have a white-hot passion for Jesus, you've got to focus your energy about that, on that. Have you learned that you can't be passionate about everything? Have you learned that yet? You, you don't have enough passion to go around for every cause that you're interested in. And here's the big question for all of us in this. Listen, when it comes to your one thing, because some people are like that. It's like, I'm all about one thing. Here's my question. Is your one thing God's thing or your thing? That's a big question, isn't it? Say, Steve, I am focused. My life is all focused on this one thing, and that's great. But is it God's thing? Paul wrote, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Translated, it's God's thing has become my one thing. That's huge. It's huge. And think about this. He said, I press on, forgetting what's behind. Let's call that practicing strategic forgetfulness. Now, some of you practice forgetfulness all the time, and your spouse lets you know about that, right? Wasn't our anniversary like last week, you know? Or... Now, this is strategic forgetfulness. This is a mental discipline. Forgetting what is behind. Would you say that with me? Forgetting what is behind. All this talk about running caused me to remember a story I heard about a guy named Roger Bannister. You ever heard of him? He was the first man in the world to run a mile in under four minutes. He did it back in 1954. Maybe you knew that from playing trivia. <laughs> but what you might not know is that the very next month, his record was broken by an Australian runner named John Landy, who bettered Bannister's time by 1.4 seconds. And what that meant is that the stage was then set for a showdown, a historic race pitting the two best, fastest mile runners in the world against each other. Reporters called it the Miracle Mile, or the Dream Race, and it did not disappoint. You can go on YouTube and actually watch the film of it. The race was close the entire way, and as the two men headed into the final turn, Landy was just a bit ahead, and it looked likely that he was going to win the race, but then he made a fatal mistake. You know what it was? He looked back. He was so worried about how close Bannister might be to him that he glanced over his shoulder to try to get a sense of where his competitor was. And just as he did, his own stride faltered for just a moment and Bannister blew by him on the other side and won the race. Afterwards, they interviewed Landy. He was very distraught and downcast. And he said, you know what? I would have won the race if I hadn't looked back. If I hadn't taken my eyes off the goal. And I wonder how many people have failed to finish well in the race of life and missed the ultimate prize because they were forever looking in the rear view mirror instead of looking ahead. I wonder how many Christians are chained to their past in a way that hinders them in their present. You know what I'm talking about, past failures, I tried that and I screwed it up. Past hurts, past disappointments, past abuse, past abandonments. You're forever looking back over your shoulder and it's slowing you down. You don't even realize it, probably. 
but your progress has slowed almost to a stop. You say, well, what do I do about that? Well, I think Paul would look at you and say, you know what, maybe it's time to let it go. You say, well, yeah, that sounds really simple. <laughs> sounds really easy, Steve. Let it, just let it go. Okay. Well, maybe you could do this. Maybe you could start to ask God for the strength to take the necessary steps to do whatever it takes to get unshackled from your past. Maybe you could talk to someone about it. Maybe you could share it in your small group. Maybe you could do the inner healing ministry. That's what this inner healing ministry is about. Helping people get freed up from their past. I've been through it. It's a great ministry for this purpose. Share it with your small group. Talk with somebody. Get counseling. Get freed up from your past. Why? Because people in the present need you. And God has a plan for your future. But if you're tethered to your past, if you're anchored to it, you're never going to be able to break free and run your race well. And it's not just past failures, is it? It's also past wins, past successes. Think about Paul. When he's talking about forgetting what is behind, what he shared with us already in this chapter is mostly victories, mostly, remember, all those things in his prophet column, all those assets. He's like, I'm going to leave those behind. Learn, like Paul, to practice selective forgetfulness. Ask God for the grace to release you from your past so you can channel your energies into the present because you know what? It's going to take your best efforts to win your race. That's what Paul points to next. He said, he said look, I'm not coasting here. He talks about pressing on and taking hold and straining forward. That's the word he uses. Straining forward like a, a runner stretching every last muscle to the limit to break the tape and cross the finish line. Number five, expending extreme effort. Extreme effort. Now, this is the same Paul whom we've always seen advocate the grace plan and not the performance plan, right? <laughs> but here he says he's pushing himself hard in his effort to win the race. So what gives Paul? Which is it, grace or performance? Here's the difference. He is not expending all of his energy to try and be accepted by God or earn righteousness. He's not. He's already got righteousness in Christ. That's the exhausting performance plan. That's religion like we talked about last week. What he is doing is expending every last ounce of energy in order to know Christ better and serve the God who grabbed hold of him and gave him his righteousness. Do you see the difference? This is not the effort of religion. This is the effort of relationship. It's like the determined efforts of the young man who has been smitten by the young, the beautiful young woman. And now, having already had his heart captured by that young lady, he now goes all out to know everything about her. I want to know her loves. I want to know her dreams. I want to know her plans. I want to know her family. I want to know her goals, her desires. It's effort, yes, but it's effort motivated and empowered by love and by fascination with this person who has taken hold of your heart. Do, do you see the difference? 
This is not religion. This is not trying to be good enough to make God happy. This is my heart has been captured by Jesus Christ, and he is a fascinating person. I'm going all out to know him. It's different. And for sure, he's speaking of effort pointed in a particular direction. And what direction is it? Not looking back, not obsessing over the past, but straining towards what is, what does it say? Ahead, forward. And that's number six. The mindset of forward progress, forward movement, forward motion. I'm straining towards what is ahead. And I know this is like a duh, but you cannot make progress if you're not moving forward. God's plan for you is moving forward, moving ahead. You know how I know that? Because everything about how God made us suggests this. Think about it. Our eyes are where? On the front of our head so we can see forward, right? How did God place our ears on our cranium? Positioned forward so we can hear the call of God to us into our future rather than listen to the gossip of the people behind our backs. Our arms work better out in front. Our feet are placed on our ankles pointing forward. Only one part of our anatomy is placed on our backside, and it seems like even God is saying some things just need to be left behind. (laughs) Exactly, exactly right. Forward movement. It's in our anatomy. And the key question to ask yourself is this. Am I still moving forward? Am I still making progress? Sometimes I meet people who have stalled out spiritually, and it's been years since they could point to any spiritual steps that they've taken in their lives, any progress with Christ. You know, that's sad. It's really sad, and it's really unnecessary. It doesn't have to be that way. It can turn around, but it's going to take effort. You're going to need to focus. You're going to need to stop living in the land of nostalgia And quit yearning for the return of the glory days. Man, if we could just go back to 1974. It was awesome. Let me tell you something. 1974 ain't coming back. Except for the hairstyles and the clothing styles. They'll come back in cycles. But you'll never get to relive your glory days. My former pastor used to say this. So many people are, are you know, pining away for the good old days. There never were any good old days. These are the best days to be living in right now. I think he was right. Believe that by the grace of God, you can begin making forward progress again, one step at a time. And get this. Here's what's, here's what's so stunning about all of this to me. You know how old Paul was when he wrote this? He was in his 60s. I mean, when you just read this, you think, well, there's some 20-something young guy, like one of our Catalyst guys, you know, all fired up and foaming at the mouth about Jesus. (laughs) Paul was in his 60s, for crying out loud. When most people have their landing gear down, coasting in on flowery beds of ease, Paul's revving up his engines to give it another go. Wow! And it makes me want to 
challenge those of you who are over 60, and I'll, I'll spare you. I won't have you raise your hand and self-identify. And I don't want to make you mad, or maybe I do. You know I care about you. But if you're over 60, could you pray and ask God to give you the grace to make your fourth quarter the best, most fruitful, most life-impacting quarter of your life? Why do you think God's done with you? Why? I know you don't have the energy you used to. I don't either. But you know what? You have something that the younger generation does not have. You know what it is? Experience. You have the wisdom of experience. And my interactions with the younger generation are telling me they want to connect with you and glean from the wisdom of your experience. They want that. Somebody in your life needs what you have. Somebody in your church family needs what you have. I would absolutely love it if I heard that our children's ministries here got inundated by a massive influx of seniors who decided that even though they last taught Sunday school in the 70s, that God was not through with them yet and they still have something to offer the kingdom of Christ. You know what our preschool children are learning about? Jesus. You, you might think that our children's ministries here is just about like child care and babysitting. You are so wrong. You don't know what goes on back there. Our preschool children are learning about, I mean, we're teaching them superlapsarianism. I'm just kidding. We're not teaching them that. <laughs> but they're learning about Jesus Christ. Our elementary age children are learning the gospel from the Old Testament book of Nahum. And so I ask you, do you know Jesus? Have you walked with Jesus for years or maybe decades? Could you, by faith, take a step and reinsert yourself into a situation like that where you have some little ones around you? Man, that, I could get excited about that. But you're sitting back thinking, well, I'm done, you know? I did my work in the 70s. What is it with the 70s? Really? I mean, you want to just kind of coast on in? I think Jesus Christ is worth more than that. You see, what we've got to realize is the way we live our lives demonstrates to a watching world and angels how valuable we think Jesus is. How much of a treasure we believe he is is indicated and revealed by how we live our lives. Man. I think the Lord might want to create a mind shift in your head, in your brain. Can I remind you that the game is often won or lost in the fourth quarter? Make it your best. Make it your best for Christ. So Paul was a 60-year-old, on-fire Christian with a flaming hot center for Christ, still moving forward in his spiritual growth. Two more things I see in his mindset. Let's call number seven a winner's resolve. A winner's resolve. He said, I press on towards the goal to what? Win. <laughs> to win the prize. You know what? Studies have repeatedly shown that people, win, people who win athletic contests intended to win. <laughs> Very few win accidentally or not expecting to win. Oh my, will you look at that? A gold medal. What do you know? <laughs> who would have thunk? That doesn't happen. 
That does not happen. More often, they have the mindset that they trained to win, they came to win, they intended to win, they expected to win, and if they don't win, they're disappointed. It's a winner's mindset. I'm going to pay the price, and I'm going to win. Paul had that. You kind of read between the lines here. He's saying, count on it. (laughs) Just count on it. You're going to see me at the podium receiving the winner's crown. That's what I've been aiming for ever since Christ Knock me off my high horse on the Damascus Road. That's what he saved me for, and it's going to happen. The winner's resolve. I came to play. I came to win. Of course, that begs the question, what's the prize? I press toward the goal to win the prize. So, Paul, what's the prize? And that leads us to the final element of Paul's mindset that he reveals here, which was the importance of your ultimate anticipation. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm going for the prize. What is it, Paul? I think I could make a strong biblical case The prize that Paul was striving to win was not an Olympic wreath. It's not a gold medal. In fact, it wasn't a thing at all. But it was a person. That's right, the ultimate prize is the promised pleasure of being with a person forever. Beholding that person in the fullness of his glory, experiencing that person's unrestricted presence, making that person proud, seeing him smile at you, hearing his voice on that day, well done, good job, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, worshiping that person with all the other winners the way that he deserves to be worshipped. That person is Jesus Christ. Paul's already said it in this chapter. I want to know Christ. I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in Christ. I truly believe that the prize that Paul was straining for was Jesus. You don't hear a lot of talk here of pearly gates, mansions, and streets of gold. Those are all part of it. That's not what Paul was going for. Jesus is the ultimate prize. What would heaven be like if it weren't for Jesus? I mean, you ever think about that? Would heaven be heaven for you if Jesus wasn't there? I don't think so. He is the prize. Being held by him, hearing his voice. For us who live in this century, for the first time ever beholding him, I went and saw the Son of God movie the other night. It's a pretty good movie. I had to suppress the teacher side of me that wanted every I to be dotted and every T to be crossed and everything to be perfectly in alignment and accurate with the Holy Scriptures. But I'm also a worshiper. And the worshiper side of me was in tears thinking, I I, I just want to see him. I just want to see my Lord. I just want to be with the Lord. The one who saved me. The one who loves his people deeply. That's the prize, isn't it? Beholding the Lord. 
Paul fueled his anticipation of that day by reminding himself of the joy of that experience. And it drove him to leave it all out on the field or leave it all out on the track for Christ to finish his race well. Well, as I finish today, I realize a few things. I realize that none of us are Jesus and none of us are Paul. He was a pretty unique guy, wasn't he? He's type A guy, I'm going to get it done. He was single, his whole life was focused. But you know what? Over and over again in the scriptures, we who know Christ are challenged to follow the example of Paul in order to be more like Christ. The very next verse, he'll say, follow my example. Share my mindset. Think like I think. And that will give evidence in your life and will bring you closer to Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, turn over on the back side and let's take a moment and just review all the elements of Paul's mindset. This running hard after God, eyes on the prize mind, mindset and, and see what mind shifts the Lord might want us to embrace today. By faith and with effort. Which of these areas maybe did the Lord impress upon your heart as needing your attention, holy discontent, like, yeah, I'm, I'm just a little bit too satisfied with where I'm at. How about that purpose that grips your heart, that larger purpose? Maybe the narrow focus, the one thing. Man, I'm all over the lot. I need to focus on one thing. How about the strategic forgetfulness of leaving behind that which is keeping you from making progress in the present? Maybe giving your best, your, the effort, leaving it all out on the field for Christ, maybe just, just continuing to make forward progress, even though sometimes it's just little baby steps. Perhaps it's that winner's resolve, I am going to win by the grace of God. Count on it. Or maybe it's that ultimate anticipation of locking eyes with Jesus one day for the first time. Earlier we saw that Paul had focused his life on one thing, right? This one thing I do. And so I'm going to ask again, what is your one thing? What is your one thing? I'm talking about the purpose for which God saved you, the reason he didn't just take you on up to heaven right when he saved you, but left you here on this earth. Have you given that much thought? Some of you have. You say, how do I know what that one thing is? Well, one man said it's the intersection of your giftedness your personality, how God has wired you, your passion, what you feel strongly about, and your opportunities, what he's laid before you and around you. Where those things all meet is your one thing. Now, you know, I don't typically give homework assignments in a sermon. <laughs> but this, I think, is so important that I'm asking you to give this some thought and prayer and maybe some conversation with other people. There's a little box there on the back side of your study outline, I'm going to ask you to write a phrase in the box this week that you believe describes your one thing. And then shoot it to me in an email, because I'd like to know. sbenninger at enewlife.com. One short phrase. Steve, I, I believe this is it. This is what God saved me for. This is what he left me here to do. So you say, well, I, I need... I need a template to follow. I need an example. Well, if it's any help to you, here's mine. 
Here's my one thing. To spread a passion, to spread a passion for keeping Jesus and his gospel front and center in the life of the church. Being clear on that has helped me so much to know what to say yes to, what to say no to, how to channel my energy into one thing. I pray for the same clarity for you as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Paul, your servant, your choice servant, Lord, who in so many ways for us set the pace so that we could know how to live this life that you've called us to. Lord, I pray for the people before me whom I love. Lord, they've made effort to be here today through the snow. God, I pray that you gave them something enriching to their heart and their life today. Lord, I feel especially burdened to pray for people who are chained to their past, to their shame, to their sin, to their failure. Oh, Lord, how I would pray in this moment that you would take the divine knife of heaven and sever that cord that is keeping them tethered to their past. Would you lift the cloud of shame that so many people feel that paralyzes them? Would you do what I can't do, but only you can do, God? Oh, Lord, give us clarity on the one thing that you have wired us, gifted us, and called us to do, that we might channel our energies into that. Help us to keep our eyes on the prize, looking your son in the face one day and hearing those words, well done, good job. May we long for that with holy passion. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.